By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. There's another page. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is God's word. All right. Thank you, Ty. We uh, threw you for a loop with that real short one last week, and then a two-pager today. But but keep in mind, um, I think we had, what was a 59-verse one back in the day? So it gets, uh, it gets more legit. So just hang around. You'll, you'll get one of those one of these days. So uh, I'll simply add to that, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So we're in a, we're in a series uh, for a bit here, and it was, uh, it was cleverly designed by Cruz for uh, all of you know, him and his friends who uh, had questions about things Christian belie- Christians believe. And then Cruz uh, went to Australia and left uh, for the majority of the series. Do you see how he did that? He, um, he, he said, hey, uh, I, I want you guys to do this thing, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll judge it from afar. I'll watch it on YouTube or something like that. Um, but the, uh, the, the idea of this series, really, and it was a good idea by Cruz, was to kind of get into, um, yeah, the basics. Like, here, here are some of the core Christian beliefs, and this is the last one that we're going over. We broke it down into just six kind of manageable sections, and today um, it's about restoration. So... I want to, uh, yeah, enter into this by, um, by just, yeah, talking about some of the hard stuff. 
So the land, some of the landmark moments, I would say, of being a pastor and leading a church have been the losses. Uh, early on, there was a core couple uh, here who went through a deeply painful loss at childbirth. It was just gut-wrenching. And it, it changed all of us. And that's just one of, of many examples. Like many of you, if you think back over the years, can think of hard stuff, um, especially things around like dying and sickness and, and pain. And when I think of myself, um, and, and honestly, this intersects with our communal story too, is, is back in late 2017, we were uh, like, we had just merged our churches and we had just sort of like discovered this building or that was kind of happening. And, uh, and my dad had to, had to go into the hospital. And I, I thought he, had, he was kind of into doing these cleanses. He was kind of a health guy. And so he'd literally eaten this clay stuff that he found somewhere, um, some health food store. And so he had to go in for a, a bowel obstruction. And I remember just telling him, I said, Dad, you ding dong, like you ate clay, man. Like what the... People make bowls out of that. You ate it. Of course, you've got a bowel obstruction. Uh, but it turned out he, that wasn't what it was, right? He had, he had cancer. And so, and then there six weeks, um, six weeks more with my dad, and he was gone. And that was in the middle of building out this place. And so it became some of your all's story, too, because there were days where we worked on the build out where you got a more irritated version of me. And I, I couldn't quite figure that out because I was, I was grieving. And then I started, uh, I went and got a haircut, and the lady said, honey, are you under some stress? And I was like, well, yeah, why? And she said, well, well sweetie, you're, you're losing some of your hair. And I had alopecia, I had chunks of my hair were coming out. And so my, when they say the body keeps the score, that's one of the, the many ways that can happen, where I didn't realize just how overwhelmed I really was. And, and many of you walked with me during these times and, and all of that. And, uh, and when, you, when you face like losses, like deep losses like that, you start to have regrets. And one of those, for me, was there were some things that I'd always wished my dad and I had done together that we never did. So for one, he kept saying he, he loved Oregon. That's where I was born and where he moved as a young man. And he wanted to take me there. He wanted to show me around. And, I, and it was always, a, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. You know, we'll do it maybe in a couple years. It's been a little crazy. And, uh, and we didn't get to do it, right? And another thing that kind of tied in with that was my dad and I, we had rescued his old uh, Model A Ford, his first car that his uncle had given him from Bisbee. And I remember one time I said, so is this like your favorite car? And he said, no, my F-250, that was my favorite. And he said, in fact, this Model A breaks down so much, maybe we should uh, buy an F-250 to tow it around with. It was kind of a joke, but also um, I think he kind of, he kind of thought about it. And in fact, within that year that he died, he and I had said, maybe this year we, we'd keep an eye out and see about you know, one that I thought he would own. And we never, we never got to do it, right, together. So when he died, I, I had to process all that. And I, I went on this journey where I did those things without him. I did those things alone. So I've got my old truck parked out in front of the, uh, in front of the church here. And there it is. In Oregon, that's the tree it lived under for some time. Um, so my, my, my little quest was I drove, or sorry, I took a train to Oregon. Um, and I wrote about this in a little in a book. Some of you have read it. Thank you for that. Um, 
But the uh, but I but I took a train to Oregon. I ended up meeting an old farmer guy who had uh, a truck like my dad's for sale. Uh, picked it up in Oregon, uh, tinkered with it, got it drivable. Um, it was not safe. I'm just going to say that in retrospect. Uh, but I drove it home and wrote wrote the story. So the. Um, and as I did that, I was processing things about my dad, about the whole, the journey, the regrets, the losses, the hard stuff. And one of the things that I processed, in fact, I reread it today, was the idea of restoration, because this was a big theme for my dad. He was kind of a, he would, he would get old things and fix them, the old Model A, furniture, things like that. And I, and I reflected on that, and, and also in that moment of loss, and I was thinking, what, why is it that um, some, that I think people in general like to see good things last, like to see old and valuable things restored. And what does that have to do with this longing I have even for my relationship with my dad to not be over, for there to be something that lays out there a time and a place um, where, where we're known and where those relationships continue um, and are redeemed and where they're preserved and where God even makes them better than they ever were, right? So that was one of those things that came up for me as I thought about that. So this evening, as we conclude things Christians believe, I want to look at restoration. And that's not the, necessarily the biblical word. The word restore is there in the Bible, but the Bible might say it as all things being made new. All things made new. And it culminates in this vision of a new Jerusalem um, descending onto the earth in the final revelation of scripture. And so Jerusalem is this city that existed before Judaism existed. It's incredible. Actually, we first hear about Jerusalem in Abraham. Um, so this is early Bible, right? Abraham encounters a king named Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem. And that is actually Jerusalem. So it's the city of peace. And it's this city that, that existed before Judaism. It's this ancient city. We don't really know how it how it got started or how it came to be, but it wasn't uh, necessarily a religious center at the time, we, from what we can tell. And so this city has this long and storied history. It's full of beauty and countless historical events, but it's also a place of deep brokenness, right? In, in the Christian story, it's the place where people, we religious people, along with kind of secular people, turned over and crucified Jesus. And, there, and we deserve judgment for this. Right. This is a terrible thing. It's, it's what we remember at the Lord's table, but it's an awful and terrible moment. Um, it's a city that's been in constant conflict, and it is now, right? It's, that conflict has never resolved. So what would, it, what would have to change in Jerusalem right, for it to be made new, for restoration to happen there? What would, what would have to happen? And isn't it an incredible thing right, that the Christian faith includes this idea of restoring broken things, that this city, once pagan, is then transformed. This city that has continued to struggle in relationship with God and one another is, in a way, replaced, redeemed, restored by a new city descending to earth when God makes all things new. And it becomes a symbol of the plan of God all along, that he doesn't just erase our history and our pain. He, he makes all things new. So the story of my dad's old truck, to come back to this, is, uh, is complicated. I think this is a great symbol of that, 
uh, complicated journey. This is my dad's one time. My dad was a very um, obscure man, but he made it onto the front page of the Lebanon newspaper um, when a little uh, sports car rear-ended him and went under his truck. So when you live in a small town, this is front page news. Um, this is the least complicated of it all. This is actually his big moment. This is uh, the clip that he saved, right, because he was famous for a day. Um, but, my, but my dad's story was complicated. So he was drafted into the Vietnam War when he was uh, 18 years old. Um, one of the key words that we chose for my father when we, when we buried him and put a, a headstone up was gentle. And that was one of his key traits. So gentle uh, people aren't necessarily inclined toward conflict. My dad was not one who wanted to go to Vietnam. Um, and that wasn't, it wasn't his bent. Um, it just wasn't what he wanted to do. Um, and that comes from, to a, in a sense, uh, his, his home where he grew up. So his father um, was, a, was a pretty gruff and kind of violent man. So my, one of my core memories of my grandfather was him shooting at people who were in his, on his property, running outside, yelling things I cannot repeat, and um, just popping off his, his uh, shotgun out in the yard. And so this was, this is my grandpa. This was uh, who my dad grew up with. And my grandpa was particularly opposed to my dad because my dad was his oldest son and the one who he wanted to relate to very much. And my dad had not only a learning disability, but he had a weak heart. So he was, when he was born, he was short on oxygen, had to undergo some kind of heart surgery. And, um, and his heart was never quite right. It was never quite the same. He would have a murmur and stuff like that. So who knows what that did to his mind, but he struggled with, he struggled to learn, he struggled to read. Throughout my whole life, he would order whatever my mom ordered off a menu because it was too overwhelming to pick something um, for himself. And his weakness irritated my grandfather very much. My grandpa was just always frustrated. There are many stories of him um, leaving my dad behind because he was like, he wasn't coming out of the house on time. So my grandpa would drive away and leave him and stuff like that. Just irritation at his weaknesses. So he railed on him, expressed his disappointment in him. And my dad spent most of his childhood getting away from his father. So in a way, the military was a way out, but it also wasn't really the way he would have chosen, right? But it got him more money and more space. Um, and it it allowed him to, when he, he did get out, which he was quite ready to do, um, he had enough money to buy his dream truck, the, uh, the F-250, right? And, uh, and his parents moved back to Bisbee, Arizona. That's where we were originally from. My grandpa worked on the railroads. So when they moved back to Bisbee, my dad stayed in Oregon and kind of had a chance to forge his own path. So he became a musician. Um, unlike his father, he went to church. See, rebellion can go both ways, right? Um, he read books and took long walks in the forest. Like I said, he wasn't a, he wasn't a strong reader, but he tried. He liked to try. Um, and he would drive down the, wind, the windy wooded roads. Um, but he was also very lonely, didn't know how to relate to people. Um, when my mom came along, she asked him out, um, and he was confused. He apparently um, didn't realize quite what was going on, and a friend of hers had to encourage her to keep, keep bugging him. Um, they got married. Uh, they lost all the children they, they bore except for me, and that was, uh, there was four others. Um, and so there was a lot of pain there, right? And then my dad lost his job in lumber along with thousands of other people in Oregon. 
and they couldn't afford the little place. They had some property in a mobile home. They couldn't afford it. He had to sell his truck. They eventually lost almost everything. And when we ended up here in Arizona, uh, we lived at the Shady Haven Mobile Home Park on Piman Columbus, which was the absolute max we could afford. And we were broke. And we lived between two uh, alcoholics who would get in big fights outside. And this was not at all what my mom and dad wanted when they were in their 40s, right? So why do I say all that? Why do I tell you all this story? When I decided to buy my old truck and engage in this kind of quest, you resurrect old memories and they're not all good. They're not all clean and simple. It's not all just, you know, the beautiful things like me and my dad rolling little cars across the, uh, across the kitchen floor. That was a sweet memory. I remember that. But you bring up a lot of other stuff too, right? When you look at the whole story, when you restore a physical thing, you have to encounter all the kind of like broken and filthy parts. Um, so when I, my truck had, had major rust damage, like here's a, here's a moment of me, um, you know, dealing with a rusty part I had to pull off of an old truck in Bisbee in order to fix this one because it was literally falling apart. You, you deal with like the rusty and the broken parts, but the same is true uh, when you deeply remember a person, a family, or a community as you encounter the broken parts. You encounter all the mess of the story, the hard stuff that is really complicated to deal with. And that's what the restoration of all things is like as it's described in the scriptures. It's our true lived experience. Um, it's, it's not all clean and simple. So this is why I picked this section from Hebrews. I know you're going, what does this have to do with all the faith verses from Hebrews? Well, here you go. Here it comes. Um, this famous version, uh, portion of Hebrews is often called the Hall of Faith, um, clearly because baseball fans were reading it, right? Um, and and they, they wanted to call name something after the Hall of Fame, so it, it works. But the Hall of Faith is, uh, is these people who did great things. And this is what Ty read to us, all these, these great names, you know, from Abel to Enoch to Abraham, and there's more that come after this section. Um, and uh, they're, they're incredible people. These are patriarchs of the faith. They, they did great things, but also every single one of them had real issues. And the point of, of Hebrews 11 is not their worthiness, and that's what's carried them through. It's that God, who they placed their hope and rested in, carried them through. That's what it means to have faith, this assurance of things hoped for, this conviction of things that aren't seen, even within yourself. Um, the first mention is, is Abel, who gave the pleasing offering, but was killed by his brother. Then there's Enoch, who's a bit of a mysterious figure we don't know a lot about, but we're told that he pleased God. But then we're told that the only way to please God is by faith, which means that outside of that faith, you wouldn't be pleasing God. Um, then there's Noah. Uh, here's a man in the Bible who takes an enormous leap of faith. He's criticized as a fool by everyone around him, but he holds fast. Um, and, and he's delivered through this uh, amazing provision of God, right? But we know at the end of his life, he's looking more like a drunk and a fool. And, and it's interesting that the story tells us this. Um, he witnessed God's judgment on wickedness and his mercy for those who trusted him, in him. He's experienced the grace of God. And then he slips back into wickedness himself, which is honestly the story of many of uh, people in their elder years, I've had the, uh, the privilege, but difficult privilege of working in a retirement home. And I can tell you that often the later years are not the golden years. 
Um, often people slip back into old ways in those times. But Noah is in the hall of faith. How? Because God restored him and made him new as, as he had witnessed on the earth. As he'd witnessed God cleansing the earth of all its brokenness, God had to cleanse the brokenness in him. And then there's Abraham and Sarah who believed, you know, sometimes. Um, and they also sinned deeply against God and each other, right? Um, Abraham had kind of sold his wife into, uh, you know, marrying another guy. Um, that's, that's a dicey little story in the Bible you can read. And uh, Abraham had believed God, um, and then Sarah had kind of laughed at the promises of God, right? And it, it was kind of a mess, but God redeemed their story and brought about this, this people, this promised people called Israel. And all of this is included in the Hall of Faith. It's, it's kind of like the Hall of Fame in baseball. So I like baseball. You see, I'm, this is Andy's greatest hits. It's a holiday weekend. I had to just go to my, my, easy, my easy roads, my easy paths. But the Hall of Fame, I don't know, does Ty Cobb belong in there? He's a racist, right? Does Barry Bonds, the steroid slugger? What about Pete Rose, um, the, the one who bet on baseball, right? Like the Hall of Faith is like the Hall of Fame in that some of these people did great things, but it's complicated because they also had some very public failures, the only way in to God's hall of faith is by restoration for the broken parts to be replaced and failures forgiven. And that's good news for you and me, by the way, because it means there's space for us. There's room for broken people. Um, what the baseball hall of fame doesn't have um, is what God's hall of faith does have. In the baseball hall of fame, you're just subject to the voters. To if other people like you enough, if your sins are forgivable in the view of others, but in, in God's hall of faith, if you put your trust in the creator's power and ability, you receive what only the perfect human deserves. If you put your faith in, in God and his power and ability, you, you get what only the perfect human, Jesus, deserves. Um, but even in this passage, when you look at the people of God and their story, you remember all the broken parts. Why does God do that? Well, without those broken parts, those broken stories, like I said, we aren't really included. And only in a story with layers of our brokenness can God be seen in his redeeming, gracious nature. God wants us to see not just his power, not just his ability, but his redemption and his grace. It glorifies God the most when the story isn't just about impressive people that found him, but about people who needed mercy, who found him to be full of mercy. Okay. Otherwise, it'd be a story of religious heroes, perhaps too lofty for us to attain. But this story centers on the goodness of God and his ability to redeem any story. So maybe you think you failed so significantly, there's no hope for you, right? Or maybe you think your faith is so weak, it's just not enough to keep you included in this story. And the good news is that Christian faith is simply to look to the one who's greater than you and receive what he's offering. That's it. Now you may say, but I'm not sure. I don't feel like it's true sometimes. And sometimes I've just been flat out rebellious. Well, looking at the hall of faith, you can see you're not alone. Um, Jacob is somebody who grew up very embedded in this story, but he wrestles with God and rebels against God. Um, 
Even if you push God away, he keeps moving toward you. Um, Sarah, who, uh, who, who gets the same promise as Abram, Abraham and, and laughs at it, um, she re- still receives the powerful work of God within her. She's a key part of the story. She's listed as, as one of the people who had faith, even though she outright laughed in the face of God. So one more piece of evidence here, um, flashing forward into the New Testament, is from the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation is, is, is um, it's a revealing, it's a, re- a revelation of the, the wonderful plan of God to Jesus's youngest disciple, uh, John. And he's given this revelatory vision, which means that he gets to see what's behind the scenes, kind of like if you go to a play. So Abby, uh, our daughter, was in Annie recently, the play. Many of you were there. And sometimes you could see like the stage hands on the side or something like that. You'd kind of see them moving something around. Um, and, and you knew that there was like, there were the two curtains. There's the front curtain um, that opened for the play. And then there were other curtains behind which there was more stuff, right? And you knew there was a lot more stuff. Well, the book of Revelation is like in a spiritual way, the opening of that second curtain, just to give a glimpse as to what's going on behind the scenes. And that, that really is behind the word revelation. That's, that's what it means. Um, it would, and if you see this, if you saw this, and as John and Revelation saw this, it gave him insight into what had come before. He saw some meaning in past experiences, right? Experiences of the people of God. He, he got some narrative meaning of that. He saw this vision of a beast, uh, this dragon, like pursuing a child. And it, it kind of gave this picture of like the whole story and gave it some, some sense of meaning. Like you got this overarching, um, you know, narrative of it all, the dramatized narrative. And then um, you would get that, and then you would see all these pieces of things that were to come, but you wouldn't get all the answers because you'd have to see the story work itself out to understand what they were for. So if that second curtain opens at a play, you might see sets and you might see costumes and stuff, but you wouldn't quite know how it all is going to work out, but you'd see some of it you'd get some clues, some major clues. And that's what it meant for God to give John the revelation. John um, received and shared with us these glimpses of what lies behind some sense of meaning um, and hope for the future, this ultimate hope that it ends well. But we don't get all the answers. We still have to participate in the story. Here's one of the scenes. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And that's not to say, by the way, for those of you who like the ocean, that there's not like water. Um, the sea in the ancient world was the place of fear and chaos. Um, it, they were terrified. They, they didn't know what was underneath, right? I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and will be his people. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's Revelation 21, one to four. And it goes on to describe the city and its walls and its gates and its streets and how the names of the tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles are on the walls. 
and foundations. Now, there's a similar theme to what we saw in the book of Hebrews here. What's it mean for the tribes of, of Israel to be listed? These are Jacob's descendants. These are the people that continued to wrestle with God. Read the Old Testament. Read Judges, Kings, and the Prophets. If you want to see how amazing these people were, right? They were not always amazing. Yeah, it's kind of bad sometimes. They're not perfect people who earned God's favor for their perfect belief system or obedience. And then the apostles' names are, are on the city. What great men, right? The apostles, the, uh, the disciples of Jesus, except for when the greatest among them, Peter, denies Jesus and they all run away at his trial. And when they fight with each other because they want to be the greatest and all that stuff, right? And how they walked with Jesus for years and didn't get it. Um, see, these people, all these people whose names end up on the city aren't great because they conjure up great faith and they live the most impressive lives of all people of all time. Quite the opposite. Their little faith was anchored in the one who had power to carry them through and keep them together and atone for their sins. See, the people memorialized in the city are all the objects of mercy with really checkered stories. So what about the rest of us? Those are like the big names, the 24 big names, right? Well, the, the environment, the built environment of this city tells the tale. What about the millions who came before and after, you know, just laboring, dealing with wars like my dad in Vietnam, just trying to make their homes and their lives? Well, the city includes all kinds of things. They, it includes streets. What, why mention streets? You know, um, streets are a symbol of civilization, when, when you get into any town or any kind of city, it's defined by its streets. It, it has these paved ways for humans to travel back and forth. Like these are, this is a symbol that, that everything, all the work of civilization is included in this place. What about the walls and gates, right? These are all our creations, but they're more than that. Walls and gates are symbols of the conflict between civilizations. Walls and gates are our creations due to the impact of sin, they combine great ingenuity with the sad realities of life. I was in Puerto Rico a couple weeks ago, um, and the walls of San Juan tell such an incredible story. Um, this is one particularly interesting portion of the wall of San Juan. So San Juan was the, the first kind of Spanish um, fort space in the new world as the Western world, the Europeans were coming over into our area here. And, uh, and so they built these incredible walls to keep other people out and to um, fortify the city. And then this gate here, the red gate was the gate where they would bring the ships into the harbor and all the people would get off the ships and they would actually march right through this gate into the church and they would worship God after every uh, every time they got off of a ship. Now that there's something really cool and really beautiful about that idea, right? Except that they were also doing some really terrible things. <laughs> um, the, the history is not all beautiful. Um, they were doing terrible things and, and many of those in the name of God. It's, it's such a complex story. But these walls are also incredibly beautiful. I mean, this is like, they're... They're the big thing. Like you can't help but just be in awe as they kind of like weave all throughout the city. Um, and then you, you're confronted with these 
terrible stories. And the stories don't end there. Here's another section of here's the ancient wall from the 1500s with an additional section from the Second World War. And so like that, that section up there that looks like a cyborg mask is added. It's the last time this fort was used and it's added during the Second World War. Um, as, and now this is a, a, you know, a fort used by the United States. Um, but the, the stories within these walls are complicated. They're, the, the structures are absolutely breathtaking and beautiful. Um, the, it's a national park for good reason. It's, it's incredible. I hope you all get to see it someday. But at the same time, it's this story of war and conflict and loss and trials and difficulty. So what does it mean that the new city includes the names of people, contains the elements of our good work, and recalls our sins and conflicts? What does it mean? that the, Because by having walls and gates, it's like San Juan. It's, there's a beauty to them, but they tell a story of war and conflict. It means that God's big story is a redemption story. It's a restoration project, and it has always been meant to be so. It's not just a story of good people, but of this gracious and merciful God that's gathering the broken stories and cobbling them into something that turns out beautiful in the end, right? Just like my journey to remember my dad, when you do that, you do remember the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, like I said, uh, my truck felt like a metaphor. Here's me with the, uh, the rusty part again, um, because... Some of, the, some of the parts of the journey were just difficult, um, and some were rewarding. Um, some prompted profound sadness. Uh, as any of us, if you've grieved something deeply, you know, um, there is a healing on the other end of that sadness, but you have to go through that whole process. You have to go through the, the pain. You have to go through the tears to, to live fully in light of that grief. We're all going to do it. It's just a matter of time. So how do Christians live in, in light of this? Um, here's a couple of applications. We grieve. That's one. Um, but we grieve with hope. There's another one of the core scriptural teachings about um, the return of Jesus, really the same moment as this like all things new moment with the city. But this one has more to do with, uh, with us and our bodies. It's uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Here's what it says. Paul, now uh, one of the later apostles, says this. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. And that's, of course, those who've died that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. If you say that positively, you would say, so that you do grieve, but as one who has hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him all those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. One of the saddest things about this scripture is it's often used to scare people. 
and the stated purpose is to encourage people. You don't need to be scared of the day that Jesus comes back. You should be encouraged that when he comes back, he gathers all who have fallen asleep and us, and we will be with him forever. What does all this mean, this final scene, this call of a command, archangel and trumpet? See, these are all signals of both physical and spiritual victory. This means that God signaled by the resurrection of Jesus that has already happened will prove to us that death is just like sleep. It's not final and it's even restful. That actually those who have died are going to experience the victory and the resurrection that Jesus has promised to us. It means that death, which is our greatest enemy, right? It took my dad. It took uh, many of our friends. It took my parents' children, right? It's taken some of the most beloved people in your lives, I know. Um, It took my best friend. It took one of the neighbors down the street on Thanksgiving. Did you hear about that? Tucson Boulevard in 22nd, a man shot dead Thanksgiving Day. That death is not the final scene of God's drama. There's a day of resurrection coming when bodies are restored. Like Jesus, bodies that were alive in this life have a glorious potential future. Where we can be more human than we've ever been without pain and heartache, but still ourselves. Maybe more ourselves than ever. And look, I don't know exactly how that all works um, because that part of the drama hasn't happened yet. But this is the hope set before us and it speaks to our deepest longings. The fact that we will still have our bodies and others will too means that our histories aren't erased just like that new city. Um, So what do we do with that idea? Well, it affirms the pain that we face in this life. It's not silly to be in pain. Death is awful. It's foreign. It shouldn't happen. It's not good. It's not something to celebrate necessarily. Um, There's one of the, the most incredible moments in the Bible that translators struggle with is Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. I've I've mentioned Tim Keller using this application uh, after 9-11, but I just read another. um, I've I've been reading a book about Lazarus and the, the writer says the same thing, which is always helpful to see. But at Lazarus's tomb, we get that little two-word sentence that Jesus wept. And then there's a follow-up sentence that talks about how he was deeply moved. And that English is weak. Um, to be deeply moved uh, seems to be to maybe cry out in a primal scream. Um, it's absolutely scripturally to express anger. Um, Every other time the word is used, it's like, it's a deep expression of of a primal anger. Um, We can affirm that fact. Just like Jesus in the face of death, it's not good. It is not the way it's supposed to be. If, if, you know, if we're naturalists, it's just like, I don't know, a mouse died, your mom died right? But if you're a Christian, 
you know that death is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not okay. It's not good. It's dark. When I went on my journey, um, I wept. I, I faced regret, you know, squarely in the face as I walked around places that my dad wanted to show me, but I didn't have time. Um, I faced deep disappointments, even in my father, things I wished he had been for me, but he wasn't. Um, I faced deep sadness and thinking through, like one of my favorite people is not going to be here for all these big moments that are coming up in my life. Um, I've done that with a friend. I've done that with other people um, in, in my life. I've walked with some of you in those moments, right? Many of us have had to do that, not just at death, but honestly, at the death of the living. Some of us have lost relationships and connections where we have the same sense of loss, and we're supposed to grieve these things. They are deeply sad and painful. We ought to cry. And if you don't feel depressed, something's wrong with you. And by depressed, I mean that you feel the, the pressure of the weight of darkness on your soul. It's real. There's nothing good about any of that stuff. But Christians hold on to this vision and this promise of hope. It's not a hope that ignores the pain. It's a hope in restoration. A hope that one day, when we become the way we were made to be, that the victory will be so sweet that the pain will be not erased, but eclipsed by the goodness of what God does in that day. Um, I have no more perspective than any of you do on these things. Um, but sometimes we get a glimpse of something that gives us a clue. And that for me is my old truck journey. Um, it hurt just to drive that thing at first. I, I seriously, when I first got it on the road and I was kind of like doing my little riding journey, I, it was, it was like every single time I sat down in it, it made me think of like all the things I missed out on with my dad. Right. Um, but with time, it's become sweet. Probably one of the best things is how much Abby likes to drive in it um, and how it connects her with the story of her grandpa, of eras of his life that she never would have experienced. That's good. See, um, when you go through these kind of journeys and you think about these things, you, you start to reflect on the things that you did receive. When we enter into a restored creation that includes all these hard stories, I think we're going to reflect on the moments we did get with people, on the chances we had to love it all, on the relationship we were able to have with God and with others, even though the pain made that difficult. I think it'll all somehow come together, especially when we see our maker face to face and when we understand how much he has suffered and taken on the brokenness for us. Um, for people who struggled with him, ignored him, missed out on so many opportunities with him, and found out in the end that he was loving us all along. Because that's where our stories have meaning. Our struggles aren't discarded, but they're wrapped into a new city, a new reality, and they're restored. And that can be hard to believe. It can be hard to believe because it sounds too good to be true. Um, we've never seen anything like that before. But look, um, 
It's something we wish for so deeply that that might just prove it's real. It's that hope that drives us uh, to this table. Jesus foretold um, his own death. He, he foretold that he was going to walk into this, this stuff, into this hardship. Um, but he also promised us and proved to us that there is more to come because he rose from the dead. And how incredible is it that when he rose from the dead, what did he show his disciples? He showed them his scars. He showed them the evidence of what we and our brokenness had, had done to him, but God had restored it even in his body through the cross and through the grave. And, um, when he sat with his disciples back when they had never seen anything like that before, right? He took bread from the table and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And they did not understand. He took wine from the table. This is my blood poured out a new covenant for you, a new promise. And he said, I'll drink it again with you someday in my kingdom, which they didn't understand. And he offered it to them and for them to just take and eat and take and drink was an act of faith. And that's all we're asked to do. Just take what he gives us. One foot in front of the other with hope. All right. The next uh, things we're going to do is we're going to enter into a few practices. We're going to take two minutes of silence and a moment to pray. Um, we are going to take the Lord's Supper together. I've described this to you. And, and it really is um, to take hold of Jesus is not to have um, your life all cleaned up and fixed. It's not to have done everything right. Uh, it's to receive what he's offering to you, to just, just to put your hand out and say, I want to believe. Help me. That's faith. It really is. Um, we're going to sing together. This is where we take these truths and try to embed them in our souls in a memorable way to just form us um, and uh, get it stuck in our heads. Um, we're going to give, which is our way of saying that this like future kingdom, this eternal kingdom is the true story. Um, and we're actually going to take our treasure and put it into that now. We're going to invest in that now. Um, and as we do all of these things, uh, ultimately we're centering ourselves in this hope. So I want to pray for us and uh, just enter into this time. As soon as my prayer is done, we're going to have two minutes of silence for you just to approach God. So let's pray. Father, I, uh, I want to thank you for this chance together in worship for the holiday um, where we set our eyes on you and remember who you are and what you've done. Um, this, uh, this idea of restoration where you take all our broken stories and, and give them a deeper meaning where all the sad things come untrue, where there's hope, um, does feel too good to be true. We relate to those disciples when they sat at the table saying, so why are we eating this again? What does this mean? Um, and we pray as with them that we would see your resurrection power, um, behold you in your glory someday, and that you would pull the scales off of our eyes and we would understand. God, as we, uh, as we give to you, I pray that you would unlock our generosity, um, not so that we can be impressive or, um, you know, have our anxieties alleviated or anything like that, um, but so that we can invest in this, in this reality so that we can actually anchor our hearts in who you are 
And I pray for our people as, uh, as they go out into the world and, you know, imperfectly walk with their families and in their careers, that you would provide for them everything that they need so that they can um, give to your kingdom. Um, I pray that you would give them what they need and withhold from them whatever would be a temptation, whatever would, you know, take them away from trusting in you. Uh, as we come forward to this table, I pray that you would infuse our hearts with just enough faith to take hold of you, uh, that you would just, just give us what we need, um, our daily bread, and that you would sustain us by your mercy and your grace. As we pray now, I pray that you would uh, bring to mind whatever it is we need to, to put before you. If it's something we need to confess or if it's just help that we need, I pray that you would convince our souls of your goodness, that you are the safest place to come with our brokenness. Um, you're aware of it. You acknowledge it in the new creation, um, but you're restoring. And so give us that boldness to come before your throne of grace. Lead us there in Jesus' name.